Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Geek Morning Podcast brought to you by the Escape Collective. I'm James Wong. We've got on the show with us today our full crew of tech editors, including Dave Rome in Australia. Hi, Dave. Hello. And we also have Ronan, Ronan McLaughlin in Ireland. Hi, Ronan. It's easy for you to say. It is. I'm apparently a little tongue-tied today. Uh, in case you are not <laughs> familiar with the show, uh, Geek Warnings is our weekly podcast covering the full gamut of cycling tech, including the latest tech news happenings this week, what we've been testing, discussions on various gear topics, and handy maintenance and upgrade advice to keep your bike up and running. We also have available exclusively for Escape Collective members additional bonus episodes that run every other week with even more in-depth coverage and special guests that you definitely don't want to miss. So if you want access to those episodes, you can head over to escapecollective.com slash join. Enter the promo code PODCAST in all caps. Uh, enter that when you check out, and then you'll get your first month for just a dollar or one pound or one euro. Uh, on today's show, we've got some news to share about a couple of new bikes from Bianchi and 3T, an interesting online calculator to help you figure out your chain lube. Uh, we've also got some changes to the UCI's technical regulations for the upcoming season that might have some impact. Uh, we're also going to discuss the pros and cons of stock component sizes. We'll reveal our personal favorite road helmets, and we'll chat a little bit about stuff we've currently got in the middle of testing. Uh, but first, how's everyone doing today? Ronan, you've got a beard. <laughs> Do you? Uh, it just happened. I stopped shaving and it happened, so I'm going to stick with it for a bit, I think. Is it growing on you? It is growing oh. on you. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, you know the drill. What what have you received lately in the tool category? Um, what have you been, what have you been spending your money on? I have scared myself this past week, and uh, I'm at a point where I actually think I need to like buy one of those ice cream containers that you can. You know, I don't know if you've seen this. You can buy locks for an ice cream container that you can lock yourself out of your own ice cream. And you can like set a timer on it, so then you can't access what? your ice cream until like the the timer expires. It, and it's for people with no self-control. And I actually think I need to get one just to put my credit card into the container. <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with that. Which is funny, because I'd be buying more things to stop buying things. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, go backwards I, I lost... go forwards, Dave. Yeah, um, Threaded is costing me way too much money. I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna lie. There's, uh... I'm still, you know, weeks after a Threaded article is published, I still get people being like, Oh, but have you seen this niche tool that, uh no one else has an opinion on and then i'm like uh damn it dave i have a solution for you or at least mm. a suggestion when people write to you and say hey have you checked out this thing or this such and such whatever and you can say no i have not but if you'd like me to here is my address and you can send me one that would be a lot cheaper for me yeah so anyway i um you, you could even just things. offer to split it 50 50 because most often i'm guessing people want to know if it's worth buying before they buy it and at least if they only fork out half the outlay and you tell them, no, this is crap. They've saved themselves half. It'd be great if there were, <laughs> there were some kind of uh, system where I could just get them to buy it, but ship it to me so I could give my opinion on it. And then if it's no good, then somehow they could get their money back. Mm. But I, I, don't, uh, I don't see how logistically I've this I've never seen work. Dave Rowe mentioned in a returns policy. No, no. So, well, we're going to have to start up a tool store. <laughs> But yeah. James, when you're away, I don't know if you're listening to the podcast, but I threw a couple of random questions at Dave without any notice. I might, I might just throw another one at him now because I got a question sent to us. Not sure if he's a member now or not, so maybe we shouldn't do this. But Sam Bennett of Tour de France Green Jersey fame is wondering if he wanted one tool kit or like a small pack of various tools 
for all his various bottom brackets, is there any such kit that he could buy that would cover most scenarios? I'm thinking no, but I said it would run it by you. Short answer is no. <laughs> Longer answer is depends on what bottom brackets he has. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Like even even just press fit alone, uh, I would say there's there are single tools that will do most press fit bottom brackets, but occasionally you'll still get caught out. The most capable tool that I, I know of with press fit bottom brackets is done by Enduro, but that's actually three separate uh, product numbers and products. It's not, mm. you know, it's all one brand, but it's it's still three separate products. And then like you get the complete press fit bottom bracket kits from say ceramic speed, which are pretty comprehensive, but there's, I have come across bottom brackets that those get stuck on. The ceramic speed one was actually the one that I said was what I hazarded a guess at, but. Yeah, mm. it's pretty close to doing most and Sam Bennett having ridden teams that are sponsored by ceramic speed. I'd imagine that's probably what he's trying to service, but uh, yeah, I would, I would say that, yeah, there's, there's no one perfect solution that I can comfortably recommend to people. I was going to plug this later, but this actually would be a perfect time to mention that in our next bonus episode, that one of the members-only episodes of Geek Warning, it's going to be hitting next week. Uh, we're actually going to be talking about uh, what you need to build out your home workshop and then also where to put everything. So we're going to mm. have that discussion with myself and Dave and Brad Copeland. So Sam, if you are a member, you'll be able to hear that next week. If you are not a member, You've got shame time. on you. Mm. You do have time. Mm-hmm. You do have time. And, I, and as I mentioned in a previous episode, it takes about 90 seconds to sign up. So, Sam, you got time. You, I know you're sitting there. You're, you're sitting there on your, on your couch with your legs up after your workout, trying to rest and recover. You got plenty of time to sign up for Escape Collective. So get on it. Anyway, we are deep into the weeds here. Let's get into the news. Uh, Ronan, talk to us about these new UCI tech regulations. What are we, what are we looking at here? How might, how might it affect things coming this season? I added this to the run sheet. Um, so I feel a bit foolish in saying there isn't actually much to say. Um, but, <laughs> but, but that's, that's part of the point here. And that's part of the reason I wanted to bring it up. I don't think we need to dwell much time on it. But the UCA introduced a raft of updates, I might say, rather than changes to their regulations. Most of it's around like adding and slash or rather than just having or in terms of what the penalties were available to the UCA. But there are a few examples where actually the, the fines and the penalties in, speci- in particular have changed in terms of what UCI commissaires can delve out at at uh, races. Rain jackets has gone from if you're not wearing a team standard rain jacket, you it's gone from like each rider being able to get a fine to just the team collectively gets one fine regardless of how many different riders are, are wearing a jacket. Uh, other things like uh, sheltering behind a car, the fines for that have got much stricter. And just the point that I wanted to bring up was I don't think actually changing the fines or the penalties is what's required here. It's just enforcing what already existed is mm-hmm. probably what's more so required. I, I think there was some study done one time and it's not the harshness of the punishment that... The likelihood of getting caught. Yes, something to that effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like the likelihood of getting caught in a UCI race is extremely high, but the likelihood of the UCI doing anything about most of the, the things that they have outlawed is extremely low. So yeah, I mean, I mean, like one one of the things that they have changed is the severity of the penalty for receiving mechanical assistance from a moving vehicle, which is exactly what we seen Wojt van Aert not get punished for earlier this year. And I don't want to dwell on that again, but yeah, I thought it was not much to mention, but worth mentioning that actually what we is this an indicator that they are going to be clamping down heavier? I don't know, but for the moment it just says stricter fines. 
Well, I certainly would welcome anything regarding the UCI that indicates that they would move to being a little bit more consistent. Hmm. That would be nice to see. Yes, exactly. And and to that point, at, at the end of the whole um, new annex of, of changes to the regulations that they've published, there's basically a catch-all paragraph that basically says uh, any infringements on the UCI regula- regulations not covered in the above can be dealt with with either a fine, a downgrading, a disqualification, a time penalty, or a points penalty at the commissaire's discretion, which, again, hmm. it's... <laughs> I don't like that. I mean, yeah, it's basically covering like anything that's not covered within the list of fines and penalties. But you know, surely the first time that finer penalty is handed out and they decide on which one of those penalties to apply, that then should become the precedent and the standard going forward. But yeah, hmm. this feels to me like the UCI is made up of two parents of the same kid, two two parents who have very different parenting styles. You know, you both know what the kid did wrong. And then you have very, very disparate ideas on what should happen from there. Whereas, you know, the, the, the dad's like, you're grounded for a week. And the mom's like, no, go get some ice cream. Just say you're sorry. Like, that sends very different messages. And just to add to the confusion, it's not actually the parents, the separate parents who are communicating the, the penalty there to the kid. There's actually like a thousand dollar parents in between the actual parents and the kid. <laughs> and those parents have to work out what the actual parent is trying to pass on to the kid but doesn't really know and yeah a lot of confusion oh man all right well ronan let me ask you this what would you say is the likelihood that any of these changes will have some real effects on how racing is uh occurring next season is there an answer less than zero zero impact okay that <laughs> that that answers my question fair enough uh all right well then i guess we're not going to talk about this anymore <laughs> <laughs> moving moving on, uh, we talk a lot about chain lube on the show and not because we're necessarily oddly obsessed with it or anything. Well, we might be a little bit, uh, but mostly because modern drivetrain components are actually really expensive and properly maintaining your setups not only helps that stuff last way, way longer, uh, but also helps it work better. Uh, Dave, you found a new online calculator the other day that maybe isn't necessarily like super groundbreaking, but it still seems pretty interesting. So what, what is this? Yeah. Uh, omnicalculator.com. They, uh, they guess, yeah, like a free service that have all sorts of different, uh, calculators that you can embed into web pages. And, uh, yeah, one of their, their latest products is they've worked with, um, our friend, Adam Kieran of Zero Friction Cycling, and they've basically imported all of his chain lube durability drivetrain data so that's uh he basically tests chain lubes based on the wear correlation with uh with chains and figures out uh the chains that cause the least amount of wear are typically the most efficient and obviously the cheapest to run uh and it's that data that they've brought into this calculator so rather than having to try look at adam's incredibly detailed but slightly um painful to look at charts i i I say this uh with admiration and i know he'll agree with me yeah they've brought into a calculator so you basically select the terrain you'll be riding roughly what sort of price range your group set is at and then you select the chain lube and it it spits out a an expected distance and sort of cost to run which is is pretty cool so yeah it it could be a way for people to you know have a play and figure out what's uh what a good chain lube for them is but yeah just having a play with it I'd, i'd say I might still prefer to use Adam Kieran's charts himself on on zerofrictioncycling.com. Uh I just uh yeah, I think in that you can kind of more quickly get to the best chain loop rather than uh using a chart to 
select uh yeah 10 different chain loops to figure out which one has the lowest <laughs> number so I, I i do agree there's definitely a lot more information uh in adam kieran stuff uh of course you have to read through most of it uh, although like you said just going through the charts is pretty helpful mm -hmm. uh one thing that is interesting about this omni calculator thing it does really paint a pretty dramatic picture very obviously in front of your face as far as how different some of these chain loops are in terms of their effectiveness yeah um because just just by virtue of it calculating like spitting out an actual number how much the wrong chain loop could cost you is pretty dramatic yeah um like i, I went through a couple of these things uh it, it'd be nice to to have a few more a few more drop down menus as far as like you know riding conditions and that sort of thing but um, if you choose mixed conditions road, and then let's say you have a flagship group set from Shimano or SRAM or whoever, uh, and let's say you want to ride, the calculations are in miles, so like 10,000 miles. So with molten speed wax, uh, that's the kind of like hot melt wax that we often use. So that would cost you over that distance about 340 US dollars estimated in replacement parts. Yep. Uh, but that same setup with some of the crummier lubes would cost you more than $5,000. So that definitely paints a pretty dramatic oh, which picture. which one's at $5,000? Now I'm curious. Oh, yeah, I see. Oh, there's like, there were like three of them that were $5,000. So I, uh, I initially yeah. thought that the, white, uh, that the White Lightning Epic Lube would be the worst one, but that was like $3,500 or something in estimated mm -hmm. component costs over that distance. Yeah. But it turns out it was not the worst one. Yeah. 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 So anyway, I think it's a, the calculator is a fantastic reminder that your chain lube is one of the the more important product decisions you make because it, it there's a, an enormous price difference between these like forget about the watts you save forget about being able to run your calf along them and not have an embarrassing tattoo it's the cost of running is is a huge component here and it, it really is worth looking at different chain lubes and, and considering that the you know sometimes the chain lubes that are 25 to 30 dollars a bottle that will actually save you money uh compared to cheaper options so yeah it's not so, always such a simple uh, decision and I think yeah this calculator is pretty cool so yeah it's free to use omnicalculator.com uh, O-M-N-I and yeah from there you go forward slash sports and you'll find lubricant cost to run I'm going to overlook the fact there Dave that you forget about the watts that you saved uh, I'm just going to focus on the differences that I found in switching back and forth between like the hot hot melt wax <laughs> options from just taking two from one company but hot melt option and their drop uh wax option or whatever it is uh and it was like three four hundred pound and i kind of you know all, all the conversations you and i have had with james and kaylee and trying to convince them why actually hot melts are worth the hassle james is looking at me like we've never had that that conversation with him but i i i, I feel like you were on kaylee's side in that it, one no it, it it's not that we've never had the conversation with him it's just we've had so many futile conversations <laughs> with him yeah in that respect because ultimately kaylee is just going to lube his chain with olive oil motor oil <laughs> a stick of butter like whatever he has on hand to make it so that his drivetrain doesn't make noise yeah. uh, i thought you were in the is... drop, i thought you were in the anti-hot pot camp no oh no oh, no, okay. no, no james I'm, james I'm, has joined i'm sitting in sitting the, in front of my uh, sitting in front of my crock pot right now as a matter of the fact. thing the okay. thing to remember kaylee is like i i consider myself one of the the people to blame as far as a lot of people picking up the crock pot and starting to wax chains because i definitely brought awareness to it but before i did it kaylee did it at valley news he was in modern time he was the first person to actually so he only has publish a story what you're saying yes so he he was the he was the first person in modern time to I guess bring back attention to to crockpots um you know with the help of 
Jason Smith from uh, Friction Facts. Yeah, the early days. Like this was pre Molten Speed Wax existing as a company, um, and Kelly wrote that story about how great waxing can be. So I think if anyone wants to just be indifferent about it, uh, I think Kaylee has earned that that spot. But the other thing to remember with Kaylee is we're talking about someone who, uh, the last time I saw him in person, just opened up his travel bag and held it above the concrete ground and let his custom mosaic drop onto the concrete floor purely and for no other reason than he knew the pain it would cause me. And I feel like his chain loop choice is very in a very similar vein that he knows it's bad, but he kind of gets a kick out of just annoying us. So uh, I think that's a, a key thing to remember here. Uh, anyway, the point I was going to make was just <laughs> I shouldn't have brought individuals into the conversation. <laughs> what I actually just wanted to point out was, you know, these drip loops are good, but actually the crockpot is worth it. It's even better. But yeah, either way, if you're using a, a wet lube that you're scared to touch, you can do better is, is probably the bigger lesson here. But either way, there are definitely some big dollar figures associated with some of that stuff. So yeah, head over to that Omni Calculator thing, uh, and then you can kind of see for yourself how much of a difference it might make. Moving on, uh, I know we've been reporting a whole bunch of bad news in the bike industry lately, but uh, unfortunately, it kind of just keeps on coming, so it's hard to avoid it. Uh, according to Bike Europe, the Excel Group, owners of Raleigh, Lapierre, High Bike, uh, Batavis, and others, uh, they just shut down their factory in Germany that was producing ghost bikes. Uh, it's right as the brand was celebrating its 30th year in business, as a matter of fact. Uh, and they said that it's going to be moving production overseas. So I feel like we've been saying this kind of every week now, but we do wish all those employees the best of luck as they search for jobs elsewhere in the industry. It's not a great time. Uh, definitely a huge bummer. So, yeah. Yeah, about 120 redundancies by the sound of it. And that comes a week, maybe two weeks after Accel shut the Rally UK offices or, or greatly reduced it. So, I mean, this is, yeah, they're, they're very much going through what, what appears to be an obvious downsizing this time. Uh, it's almost like massive consolidation doesn't always work out so well. Mm. Uh, but that's besides the point. Um, <laughs> one more piece of news before we move on to bigger topics. Uh, there were apparently not just one, but two break-ins in one day at the Pinarello factory showroom in Treviso, Italy. This was just a few days ago, actually. The facts around this case are kind of wild. Thieves apparently drove, well, they, they broke through a fence, uh, and then they pried open a door and drove away with 12 bikes. That was the first time. And then about that 20 was, hours later- Yeah, that was early in the morning. Yeah, so then apparently 12, uh, apparently 20 hours later, which would be then late at night, uh, presumably the same thieves cut through the same section of fence that had been repaired earlier that day, pried open the same door, and snagged another seven bikes in the grand total of about 250,000 euros. We don't have a ton of facts around this thing, um, but I just want to say the moral of the story here, I think. Uh, bike companies, for God's sake, please get yourself some better security. Uh, my kid recently built herself like a, this crazy house in Minecraft that's surrounded by a moat filled with lava, so that would be my pick. <laughs> I know in all likelihood it was the same thieves come back, but I, I just like to think that actually it was a different group who had planned the exact same robbery on the same day, and they broke in and they went, Shit, half the stuff's already been taken. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, I mean, if there is a moral of the story, I think it, other than the, the lava moat one, which, which is obviously highly relevant, but that, that's, uh, other than that, I think it's that, you know, if you are broken into, then I'm sure the fact that actually Panarello had replaced that fence and fixed that door means that their insurance is valid for the second robbery on the same day. You know, would you repair the fence immediately. I'm, I haven't seen it. Maybe it was essential it was repaired immediately, but I could easily see that actually 
the defense hadn't been repaired and it, they just rocked up that night and did the same job again. Maybe. I, I, I don't know. But either way, uh, whatever that door is, whatever that fence was, clearly is not doing the job. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So hopefully there are some, uh, some renovations happening at Pinarello's Treviso showroom. All right, on to a bigger discussion topic. So, Ronan, we're going to come back to you. So you dropped something into the show notes earlier about uh, something about stock component sizes and chickens and eggs. I am curious, what is on your mind here? On my mind is the fact that every time we ask why modern performance-oriented road bikes, specifically aero bikes, are still delivered as stock with pretty wide handlebars and standard, as we're told, crank length sizes, it's that most often the answer is, well, that's still what the market demands. And I'm kind of wondering, is that what the market demands because that's what the market is given and most people don't have an option to change them because that would involve huge financial outlay? Or is that actually what the market demands? And I'm kind of wondering, is it a bit like, to use one of Josh Portner's sayings, is it a bit like surveying haircuts at the military? you're going to get one answer in terms of what's the most popular type of haircut because they only really have one option. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I have one answer on this, which is uh, related to the Tarmac review I'm currently writing. And I reached out and asked uh, Miles Hubbard from, uh, from Specialized, who's, I believe, the road product manager, about this very thing because my 54-centimeter Tarmac came with a 42-centimeter uh, wide bar, which feels like a bit of a, a strange pick. And yeah, I mean, it's simply he pointed to the fact that Specialized have their own retool fitting database and that uh, it comes down to that that is, on average, the correct size handlebar for the person riding a 54 centimeter. I would say where things get murky is that the trends have changed, right? So like it's people are picking handlebar sizes that aren't purely based on the traditional method of matching shoulder width. It's now more of a performance choice. And uh, I myself have made that same switch. I've gone narrow in a handlebar, and it's a good question, Ronan. But yeah, I think brands right now are still pointing towards that it's it's a bike fitting thing. I want to caveat first of all that I 100% appreciate that wide handlebars are going to be the correct handlebars for some riders, and the preferred handlebars for some reason for some riders, even if they're not the correct size of handlebars, just you know people have different options. My sort of I don't know if it's great, but my sort of question arises from the fact that so many of these bikes have so many other compromises made in terms of achieving aero gains and performance. Twenty five mil tires. Twenty five mil tires. Even yeah. just, you know, you could you could go as far as you want. You could go to internal cable routing if you want. You could go to sure. there's any any number of things you could bring up that are actually not really ideal for for anybody, but they do come with a performance gain. And given that there is no one size fits all in terms of handlebars and in terms of cranks and that, why are the those components still sort of erring on the side of caution and erring on the side of tradition when so much else about a bike has moved with the times? Well, one thing that we always have to remember is the lead times that are required with a lot of these bigger companies and these more popular bikes. I don't have exact figures to share, but uh, certainly for a company the size of Specialized or Trek or Giant or whatever, um, those specifications are set quite a long time before the bike is actually released because they have to make sure that all the parts are manufactured and assembled, all the bills and materials are all fulfilled and stuff like that. 
So it's easy for us to complain about X, Y, and Z bike that is not up the times, but it may very well have been up to date when it was configured a year ago or whatever. Product managers in general, they do have to kind of guess oftentimes what people are going to want by the time a bike is released. And it, it certainly is like the art of a, uh, like the art and science of a, of a product direct a product manager to see what that would be. Like, you know, some people have better crystal balls than others, but for sure they don't always get it right. My skeptical view here is that it's more reducing friction of purchase. So a customer comes into the bike shop and they've got a pre-existing road bike that was bought five years ago. It's got a 42 centimeter wide bar. It's got a 172.5 millimeter crank. And while we now know that a shorter crank is probably more efficient for most people and a narrower bar is more efficient from an aerodynamics point of view, uh, that customer is used to their bike feeling that way. Rather than the store having to spend an extra 20 minutes talking to the customer about why their new bike has shorter cranks and why the handlebar is narrow and why it feels narrow as a result of that, they just give them the bike with the same fitting dimensions and off they go. I, that's, that's a skeptical point of view and there's probably, unfortunately, there's probably a large amount of truth to it. Uh, and I think it's especially if you, if you imagine that a lot of these road bike companies are basically selling bikes to their pre-existing com- customers. And those pre-existing customers may not necessarily immediately sell their old bike. They might keep it as a spare. So now, you know, that you've got cranks that match, you've got handlebar widths that match and all that. Whereas if they were actually making these trendy changes, then all of a sudden that customer would have two bikes with different length cranks. This reminds me of something, I can't remember when this was, but uh, someone at a bike company told me that in relation to like, you know, dealers basically just wanting to sell whatever they can sell, they, they had said that if you had surveyed 100 dealers as far as what do they want next year, most of them will just tell you more of what they sold last year. Yep. So, Ronan, I, I'm, I'm with you, um, but I guess, it, I mean, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle as it usually is, but uh, one thing that I do at least appreciate and one thing that I feel like more people need to remind themselves is available is that a lot of those higher-end bikes, even from, uh, even from mainstream brands, they are available as frame sets. Um, so, assuming they're in stock and produced in appropriate quantities and that sort of thing so granted going that route would oftentimes cost you more money than an off-the-shelf build and it would take longer but at that Mm. point you would get exactly what you want uh and for certain brands particularly consumer direct ones it might actually be a little bit less expensive because then you're not getting rid of components that you can't use well i was going to say actually often it works out much less expensive because if you if you buy a stock bike especially in the premium end and then these sizing things are an issue for you and you have to replace them all. If you, if you have to replace the crank set length and the chain ring size and the handlebar and stem configuration, you're into quite a lot of money at that point. So quite often it's actually, you know, on the face of it, the complete build bike is cheaper. But when you actually run the math and do, you know, what, by the time you get the bike on the road in the configuration you want with the tires you want, you could even throw that into the mix, then actually it could be considerably cheaper just to go down the, the building a, a frame up option. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be really stubborn here though. Um and <laughs> I'm gonna go back to specializer's response to Dave. And again, I think it comes back to the question, you know, if that's the right handlebar size, fair enough. You know, you can't really argue with it being technically speaking the correct handlebar size for someone. But more often than not, we see riders so bikes that aren't really the correct bike for the discipline that they're more often than not, enjoying. Yes and no on that one. Uh, and the part I'm going to be really stubborn on, on is the fact that 
seven or eight years ago, I was selling brand new Ford Fiestas that cost less than many of these new bikes. And the list of options that you could change on any one of those brand new cars. And I, I appreciate it's an entirely different market and there's far greater you know volumes involved and all that. But you could change almost anything with a, with a brand new car. And as prices of bikes increase, and that may well be for genuine reasons, the cost of everything is soaring through the roof these days. But alongside that, we have less choice in terms of things that actually make the feel and the fit of that bike right for the individual. And I think the bike industry could do a lot to offset some of the kickback in terms of pricing if these bikes could be delivered with actually the size of cranks, the size of chain rings, the size of stem, the saddle, the seat post setback, the things that you're going to need to fit the bike to you. And and some do, but I mean that creates significant delays in delivery and kind of mm. a lot of customers yeah, you, you with, can't get with a bicycle quickly. purchases want to go into a bike shop and just mm. buy the one off the floor, and that's mm. you know that's that's a big a big hurdle. But I would say the big point here, and this is the Geek Warning Podcast after all, is that none of these changes happen in isolation, right? So you you make a you make the handlebar narrower, that you then need to make up for that reach difference. So then all of a sudden you're either going a longer stem or you're increasing the reach of the the frame to make up for that or you're going an arrow handlebar and pretending like nothing happened you're just looking around up in the sky and hoping the customer doesn't notice that the reach is now shorter but yeah that's the problem if the customer then wants to go to a wider handlebar there's other you've introduced other issues likewise for shorter cranks shorter cranks allow you to drop the bottom bracket height but what if the customer wants to go back to longer cranks at that point so yeah you you look at specialized for example they haven't changed their geometry on the new tarmac since the sl5 maybe at least the sl6 uh and yeah it's it's kind of you know that's remains the same because the component fitments have remained the same so i think that's probably worth talking here is that these trends only can happen once people once enough customers understand the reasons for them otherwise you're just making unusual changes that could potentially upset sales i mean ultimately i think it boils down to it's just sort of the unfortunate realities of how bikes are largely sold these days because Ultimately, yes, Ronan, for sure, bike prices have been going up, but ultimately bike companies want to make as much money as possible and people want to spend as little as possible. And uh, apparently one of the solutions that bike companies have settled on to try and come to some sort of middle ground is to have these pre-configured bikes. It clearly works for them for the most part. I mean, I, I, would, I would argue that, you know, maybe that needs to be re-examined. But clearly it works for them for the most part because then they can just sort of have these bikes pre-configured, ready to go, neat and tidy in a sealed up box. It ships to a dealer. The dealer just opens up the box, puts the bike together, sticks it on the floor. And then presumably someone just says, that bike looks sweet. It kind of fits well enough. I'll take it. Here's my credit card. Because ultimately they want the transaction to be as quick and easy as possible. And they want to just remove as much complication as possible throughout the supply chain, right? I would personally love to see even mainstream brands adopt a system that a lot of smaller brands use, particularly a lot of consumer direct smaller brands, um, whereby you choose your model and then you can kind of customize every single thing from there. But unfortunately, that may be the sort of thing that only works at smaller scales. I'm not really sure how that would work at the much, much bigger volumes that the major brands play in. Going back to my car analogy there, you could order a brand new car with any of the options that you wanted and the color that you want and the stitching you want and this, that and the other, but you'll wait longer for it. Or if you walk into the dealership, they'll say, we have this Ford Fiesta sitting here and it has X, Y, and Z that you require. It doesn't have this other thing you're looking for, but actually because it's sitting here today, we can do it at this price and you can drive away tomorrow. 
Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it can work both ways is kind of my point. Ronan, were you a good car salesman back in the day? I'd say so. I want to buy a Ford Fiesta. I, I like to think <laughs> I, I was able, but I didn't enjoy. <laughs> oh, I didn't ask you if you enjoyed it. That's a very different question. I think I was able. I'm, I'm not getting into my CV here. There's, there's a stat to you either way, but I'm not going to throw it out. Ronan, I'm not, I'm not surprised at all if you were a good, if you were very good at, at selling cars. I, uh, I reckon it is Ronan, a convincing argument for a lot of people. I reckon Ronan would have been one of the staff members that had done a four to five hour training ride the morning of work and would have been found in the boot of a Ford Fiesta sleeping while he should have been trying to sell. <laughs> mm, I, I, I wasn't as highly motivated in that role. Uh, yeah. let's, let's, let's put it that way. Not surprising. <laughs> not surprising at all. All right. Let's wrap this part up and move on to something more fun. For anyone who hasn't listened to the show in the last couple of weeks, we did introduce a new segment called Pick One. I think this is courtesy of Dave, uh, where we basically pick a category and then we decide, I guess, which one we each has as our favorite. So for this week, I went ahead and picked a category and it's going to be road helmets. Uh, pretty broad category. I know there's a lot, of, a lot of selection out there, lots of different selection criteria. Ronan, I'm going to start with you. What, would, do you have a favorite road helmet overall? If you, if you had just one that you had to use all the time, what would you go with? Pretty much this entire year, I've been enjoying the new cask Elemento. It'd be hard for me to go out in a limb and say it is, without doubt, my favorite helmet. It has some quirks that I'm not a big fan of, but what I do really like about it is the fact every time I put it on, it just feels comfortable on my head. You know, different head shapes and different helmet shapes may or may not be compatible, but the cask, pretty much all the casks I've ever had work for my head. And for that reason, the new Elemento, because it also, as far as I can tell, I've done some aero testing, it hasn't been conclusive, but as far as I can tell, it's a good balance of breathability and also aerodynamics, which is, you know, you know me, aerodynamics is pretty important. So for that reason, I'm, I'm actually going to give you an answer this week. More often than not, I sort of skirt around the pick mm. one uh, topic and, and pick several or pick none, but this week I'm going to give you an answer. The price is okay, maybe... Man. Not even maybe the price is definitely a problem, but other than that, um, and and the couple of quirks that I mentioned, uh, I will have a review on that helmet before Christmas. Uh, that's a little preview to the review. Hmm. Okay, Dave, do you have one? Yeah, it's gonna annoy the heck out of Ronan. <laughs> um, Pock Ventral Light, which is just hmm. yeah, it, it like it doesn't even have MIPS, which is uh, I don't know. I feel like a bit of a hypocrite at this point, but it's uh, for me. I mean, yeah, I live in a high humidity area and I, I seem to struggle with the heat so uh, I just like that the and I don't move it particularly quickly up up climbs at the moment so uh, yeah I just like a, a helmet that's that's well ventilated and I'd say my biggest issue with it is is probably a bit of wind noise when descending but other than that I, I just like how how feathery that helmet is and and yeah just how how ventilated it is at, at slow speeds it's got a lot of big gaping vents in it so uh, if I had to pick a second one, and I typically only wear it when it's cooler, but yeah, laser uh, Vento Kinetic Core is is sort of my pick when I actually want a helmet that won't offend Ronan, and when it's not <laughs> super muggy outside. Dave, I'm kind of curious why why do you feel like that Ventral Light helmet would offend Ronan? I think it's about as aerodynamic as a overweight goat. Fair, <laughs> fair. Okay, um, <laughs> all right. I, I quite like park helmets also. They just don't work for my head. Uh, and I have a couple, and I don't know should I size up. 
I mean, I'm I'm right in the middle of the sizing for size medium. So I think that the shape just doesn't work for my head. Yeah. Pucks. Weird, weirdly enough, pucks the exact same for me. I, I often can't wear pucks, and, and I'm the same as you, Ronan. I find cask and laser to be the two most comfortable, consistently comfortable brands for me. Uh, and Puck, they've, I've had some test helmets previously sent to me where I'm like, I don't fit in a small or a medium, and both uh, are terrible for me. But for whatever reason, uh, and perhaps this isn't the best sign of their consistency of shaping, but the ventral light's very comfortable for me. So I, I, yeah, I, I don't know why. I think probably that's lack of MIPS might be playing into the shape of it. But yeah, either way, it's comfortable for me, and I haven't had any pain points from it. James, I, I want to come back to MIPS, but I want to hear your pick first. My pick is actually the Giro Aries. So I've been riding in one of those for the last few months now, and I'm normally pretty, I feel like, diplomatic with my choices for a lot of things. But I'm going to say flat out that this is. It may very well be the best road helmet I've ever used for me personally. It does fit very well, uh, which I like. I actually don't remember if it's aero at all. It might be. I don't know. But the big thing for me, I'm sure is, they'll have some aero claims. Whether or not it's uh, probably aero, it very, very, likely, very likely, very um, likely. But the big things for me is it is. I, I find it to be exceptionally well ventilated, and not just in terms of kind of how big the vents are, which I find plays more role when you're moving at slower speeds. Um, but also how they do all the channeling inside the helmet, which mm-hmm. for me has a bigger factor at higher speeds, so the air actually has somewhere to go. It's pretty reasonably light, not crazy light. It's definitely not in the same level as that as that POC that Dave mentioned. But the thing that I've come to find is that I really like that whole MIPS spherical design that a couple of companies are using. And one thing I've discovered, so I mean, I voluntarily shave off all my hair. And uh, one thing that I realized is that I hear this quite a bit. Hair does provide an additional sheer layer when you crash. So your, your helmet does kind of rotate and slide across your hair. Uh, and when you don't have that, and I have the, the burn scars to prove it on my head right here, even if you are in a helmet with, with traditional MIPS, if you crash and if that helmet is kind of pushed up against your skull hard enough, your skin kind of just like grabs against the inside of the helmet and it doesn't really rotate all that well. Mm. Um, or if it does rotate, it leaves you a couple of friction burns on your forehead as I have here. Um, but what I like about that MIPS spherical is it doesn't matter if that inner shell is just strapped super tight to your head, the outer shell of the helmet's still going to rotate quite a bit. But yeah, and that helmet also manages sweat really well. I think it looks pretty good. Um, there's a little light that you can add onto the back of it. It kind of ticks all the boxes for me. James, I know you previously, your favorite helmet was a bell because of the way it would, um, direct sweat out of your, out of your brow from, from memory. How does the Jira compare in that regard? Uh, it's actually, I think it's actually a little bit better. Um, it doesn't use the same technology. So that old bell, uh, and Jira still uses this on some helmets. They have like this little extended tab on the brow pad so that when you're in the riding position, the sweat kind of collects at this point in front of your forehead and then drips down so it doesn't actually come straight down your face. This Jiro, it doesn't use that, but it does use uh, like this little embedded silicon rubber strip inside the brow pad to kind of divert it out to the sides a little bit. It, it's basically like it incorporating directly. Yeah, it's basically incorporating directly what you might see from a company like Sweat Gutter or mm. uh, VO, uh, people who use sure. those things would be familiar with that, or like the the Halo headband that has yeah, yeah. similar technology. That's what I'm thinking of, yeah. But it's built directly into the brow pad, which is nice because I don't have to put anything else on. It's just like you kind of just stick it on there. Aside from it being quite expensive, um, I can't really think of anything that's bad about this helmet. Like it tests really well on Virginia Tech. It's like one of the top helmets that are on the on the list. Yeah, I'm a big fan. So I, I picked the cask Elemento. Uh, one of the things I, you know, the thing that I 
the main reason I picked that is actually just how comfortable it is each and every time I put it on. I've got so many other helmets that you're always adjusting, you're always changing the straps, and you're always moving this and moving that, and sometimes the retention thing at the back comes apart, and just a general nightmare. Uh, and I really like the one of the big things about that helmet is just the channels they've been able to put inside it, which sort of allows the airflow just to really you know you, you can you can actually feel it on your on your head. But my hesitation around that helmet, and I'll not get into the entire review here. There there is a bit of a sweat control issue with the pad used at the front. Um, but my main hesitation is that for whatever we want to argue back and forth about MIPS, I would just prefer if that helmet had MIPS in it. You know, the 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 toss up for me was between the specialized. I always mix them up. The Evade is the Arrow one, isn't it? Uh, the specialized Evade and this new cask. I've gone for the cask just because it's just so much more comfortable all the time. But you know, and and the Evade's corner was the fact that it now has MIPS in it. That was that's a that's for me that is important. James, your pick does have MIPS. Dave, yours doesn't. I'm kind of wondering. You know, Mang's doesn't, but with a couple of slight changes here, there, Mang's could have easily gone the specialized way, and then would have had MIPS. How important is MIPS to us? I guess is the question when we're when we're picking a helmet. For me, it is very important, but I picked a helmet that doesn't have it. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to know your opinion. Uh, I mean, I still have the opinion that the best helmet is the one that you are most likely to wear all the time in terms of granted i feel like these days it's pretty rare that you run across a cyclist on the road who isn't wearing a helmet at all but if you have a helmet that really kind of disappears on your head and makes you feel good about wearing the helmet then that is probably a good pick but for me personally you know certainly at least having having known pretty well a bunch of people who have dealt with closed head injuries i am of the opinion that i kind of want to stack the deck as much as possible in my favor. So I know the, the, the data around MIPS and similar sorts of technology that like, can, be, can be a little muddled. Like it's not really necessarily super clear like that, that there's a ton of consensus that it is just flat out better. Um, but I certainly haven't seen anyone make the argument that it's worse. Yeah. And then like, I don't want to necessarily take that Virginia Tech independent test lab as gospel or anything, but I do find it kind of noteworthy that basically every single one of their top testing helmet has some sort of rotational protection element in it yeah i mean for me like not to get in the weeds on it my mountain bike helmets have mips road helmets i mean one like the kinetical has its own you know alternative technology uh the POC, i'm, I'm kind of taking a bit of blind faith in that company building its reputation on on safety and internal testing and and also that i have hair as a slip layer is kind of in my mind what what lets me still wear it but yeah, I think fundamentally, if I had the choice, I'd probably just, you know, play it safe. And, you know, regardless of what the science may or may not say, I'd probably still rather have a helmet with MIPS. I just, uh, yeah, for me, it, it comes back to the comfort of, of what I'm wearing. And that is the most comfortable choice. And it, yeah, that perhaps is a foolish decision, but uh, it's, a full, it's a decision of mine. And, uh, yeah, I'd I'd say back to your point, Ron, where you know comfort matters above all all else. Is it's kind of the cliche of if you forget you're wearing it, then that's the best helmet for you, probably. It's mm. it's a um, it's a bit like the arrow, Dave. It may not be helping you in all situations, but it's never hurting you. Yeah, <laughs> unless I'm sweating unless into my eyeballs and crash because I can't see. But yeah, <laughs> mm. I, I should say also I've assumed that we can't pick time trial helmets because obviously I would have picked the Sweet Protection Redeemer had we had that option. Obviously, but, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming that's going to be another week. 
We we can save that for an episode when you're hosting, Ronan. <laughs> On my own, with no guests. Yeah, we'll, exactly. we'll save and, that and, for the pick one silly looking helmet. Right, and then, right. Yeah. And then and then Dave will respond with, I don't have one. And then I will respond with, I don't have one. <laughs> I do, I do, I do have a, a Bell aerodynamic helmet from uh, the days of Lance. Um which I, I bought on sale just specifically for to wear in a, a single speed race. With a, again another skin suit story. And uh um that day was forty five de- that day was forty five degrees Celsius and I gave my health myself heat stroke within the first lap. So um that that didn't work out for me. We we don't have the same climate here, Dave. That, that's all that's all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, before I wrap up with a couple short little things here, uh, I want to do actually a little quick roundtable here. And this isn't something that we have talked about in the past, but it's something I kind of want to play with on the show. What's something interesting that everyone's in the middle of reviewing right now? I'm hesitating because Dave and I covered this two weeks ago and it hasn't really changed for me since. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, I'm still, uh, I need to wrap up this week. Hopefully I've started to make progress. The Tarmac SL8 I've been reviewing and... I reached out to some people on Instagram wanting feedback from anyone that's owned both the SL7 and the SL8. And I got far too many people that worked for Specialized in some capacity at retail level or whatever. But uh, I also got some some answers from people that have you know bought into both SOX bikes. And uh, it was pretty cool to have basically almost everyone agree with what I was feeling and kind of confirm it without me giving leading questions. So... Yeah, that'll be included in the review. And then uh, the other thing that I'm trying to work on right now is uh, clicking away with uh, budget torque wrenches from Amazon, AliExpress, and Harbor Freight. Uh, and just trying to yeah, get some opinions on how they may compare against uh, the more premium torque wrenches I typically pick up. So um, mm, interesting. Yeah, that'll probably be my next threaded if all goes to plan. But uh, that'll depend on how productive I am today. Uh, well, then I'm going to not dwell on this topic too much longer <laughs> because that's going to take away from your productivity. Uh, I guess one bike that I've been testing that's been, uh, that I'm pretty excited about actually. So I'm wrapping up a, uh, the BC 40 trail slash cross country yeah. bike from allied that, that company in Arkansas. It's a bike that I've wanted to test for a while and it's definitely been pretty high on my, on my list for quite a bit. It's pretty awesome. I think for the most part, uh, pedals incredibly well, handles like a trail bike, but yet it's still kind of light and snappy like a shorter travel bike. It's actually not quite as expensive when you look at it as a complete bike as it's made out to be. The frame set only price is quite expensive. I mean, they are still making those in Arkansas, Um, but the complete bike prices are kind of in line with what you'd find from top tier bikes from Trek or Specialized at an S-Works level, that sort of thing. So that's one that I'm just finishing up. Uh, hopefully I will have that written up and published next week because at the very least I need to free up a hook on my wall because a bunch of other new bikes came in for review that are still sitting here in boxes that I need to get out of my garage. The first world problems of being a bike tester. Very, very much first world problems for sure. I was actually, um, I think I had a dream last night about an article just purely based on the first world problems of being a bike tester. I might, I might have to scribble this up. It was, yes, I, I dream about <laughs> articles, okay? Uh, but yeah, it could be quite quite funny. Dave, do you think you can figure out a way while you're dreaming about articles to actually be typing about the articles too? It would improve my, uh, my work output, wouldn't it? Yeah. Do you ever like wake up and write down a note thinking that you've just had this genius brainwave and then you wake up in the morning and read the note and it makes no sense? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, maybe that's just me. Just to publicize it. A review that hasn't actually been published yet, but will be certainly by the end of this week, is my Super Six Evo review. Long time in the making, but it's actually typed. It's all done. 
need to proofread it and add photos. Looking forward to seeing that for sure. All right, last couple of bits of quick hit news here. Uh, Bianchi's got a new gravel bike called the Impulso RC with everything you'd pretty much expect out of a modern go-fast gravel model, uh, such as aero tube shaping, fully hidden cable routing, low weights, and actually surprisingly mountain bike-inspired geometry with a longer reach and shorter stem. Uh, but maybe the biggest news about the Impulso RC is that it's basically the exact opposite of the outgoing Arcadex from an aesthetic point of view, uh, meaning it's actually one of the prettiest gravel bikes we've seen in a while instead of one of the ugliest. Uh, so these bikes won't be available until sometime in early 2024, but we'll definitely get one of these in for review because it looks quite interesting. Uh, 3T also has a new gravel bike of its own called the Extrema Italia. It looks very similar to the company's other gravel models with that sort of hyper-exaggerated aero tube shaping, but this one has clearance for 700 by 57 mil tires. Uh, it also has dropper post compatibility and a whole bunch of mounts, quote, for the racer with dreams of adventure, unquote. Uh, having ridden a couple of 3T's other current gravel models, I'm definitely curious what this thing will be like. Uh, and there's supposedly a loader in the, uh, on the way to me, so I guess I'll find out soon enough. All right, well, we'll make sure to include links with more information on those bikes in the show notes, so be sure to check those out at escapecollective.com, uh, where you'll also find us rolling out our new few of my favorite things, end-of-year editor's choice product roundups, so you definitely don't want to miss those. Uh, both Dave's and mine will be live by the time you hear this show. Uh, and speaking of shows, next week's bonus Geek Warning episode will include myself, Dave, and pro mechanic Brad Copeland for a deep dive on what you need to build out your home workshop and how you might want to physically organize all those tools, too. Uh, and finally, make sure you also check out Ronan's new members-only podcast, Performance Process, uh, where he gets super deep into the weeds on how you can go faster on your bike. And Dave's new free-to-everyone tools-focused newsletter, Threaded, has been going for a few weeks, so make sure you sign up for that, too. Uh, don't forget our $1 membership promo. Head over to escapecollective.com slash join and use the code podcast at checkout. Uh, and that's all we got for this week. So thanks as always for listening and we'll see you all on the next episode of Geek Warning. Geek Warning.